This is a podcast asking the very best in the world how to stay resilient. I'm Michael Bungay-Stanier, and we will get through this. You may know the saying from the Bible. I've certainly come across it in plenty of organizational literature. And the saying is this, where there is no vision, the people perish. And I remember when I first read that, I was like, yeah, that's right. I nodded vigorously. (laughs) And in fact, when you think about leaders and what makes a great leader, when you ask people, often the answer is, well, they, they, they set a vision. That's the job as your leader. It's like, where are we going? What direction are we heading? Well, a recent article I read um, on HBR Online really challenged that idea for me and challenged it in a really productive, helpful way, um, not just based on opinion, but actually based on some research as well. And I want to dig into that. I want to dig into the danger of vision and what might a leader offer in addition to or even more important than vision. So let me introduce you to my guest, uh, Jean-Pierre Pielieri, or GP, as he's known to the world, so that's going to be known in our conversation as well, is an associate professor of organizational behavior at INSEAD, which is the business school with campuses in France, Singapore, Abu Dhabi, and San Francisco. It's really the preeminent European-based business school. He's based on the French campus, although he does work all over the world, and he's an expert in leadership and learning with an unusual background for a business school professor as a medical doctor and psychiatrist. And thus, he has a keen interest and a deep insight on the human side of leadership and work. He directs the INSEAD Management Acceleration Program and a number of bespoke workshops for global corporations on leadership development. And he writes extensively in both academic journals and in the management press, hence the HBR. I also know him from the Thinkers 50 world as well, where he is constantly and regularly being recognized. So, GP, thank you so much for being part of this. I know in this transition to the virtual teaching world that you're part of, you're a busy man right now. Um, Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Michael. So we talked about vision and started there. And, you know, as soon as you said that in your article, you know, everybody goes, oh, that's what a leader does. They provide vision. And then you challenge that in the yes. article in a really useful way. What's the, what's the dangerous attraction about vision, GP? You put it very well. I mean, it's a dangerous attraction. You know, vision is something that's constantly seducing, inspiring us, moving us. And I think the core of that attraction is our desire for better, is our desire for hope, and sometimes our desire for rescue. Um, I have nothing against vision per se. I think, you know, as human beings... Um, in times of stagnation, we need an image of um, that shakes us up and makes us move. In times of crisis, we need a story that's bigger than our troubles so that we right. can overcome them, right? And that's what a vision provides us. It provides us a picture of a future where we will be better off. Right. But sometimes a vision alone is um, is not just inadequate, it's dangerous because it puts us a little bit in a dependent mindset. It kind of subtly gives us the message that if we only could get there, then everything will be all right. All our trouble will be gone. 
we want up to work and sometimes we can become captive of the vision and you you gave that wonderful quote about you know vision being necessary to survive but it's also mm-hmm. true that sometimes people die for visions right i mean and, you make uh, the point in your article that vision often leads to sacrifice and sometimes sacrifice is the appropriate response but oftentimes it's not the appropriate response and it leaves bodies in its wake absolutely i mean some you know vision can burn you out you know if you think of the root um word of that idea of the leader who has a vision that then suddenly becomes uh, consuming and passionate right. communicated to others you know it brings us back to this traditional image of the leader that's still at the core of a lot of what we think about and a lot of what we teach is the leader as some kind of mystic as a combination a bit between a mystic and a general that mobilizes the troop through this um, through these pure ideas and um, and of course as we know you know the those visions and mysticism can can sometimes completely consume you you know and I was actually you mentioned my background I was fascinated when I transitioned to the world of business and leadership from the world of mental health, I found this fascinating parallel between the way we describe vision in business, which is this idea of the future that the leader believes passionately and communicates compellingly to others. And right. what I knew in my background as a, as a doctor and a psychiatrist is a hallucination. Right. So I was about to say, it's like a hallucination. It is. It's like a well, psychosis of sorts. Right. Naturally, they're the same. Structurally, they're the same. You know, it's okay. an idea of something that doesn't exist, but that yeah. people believe in and sometimes will take risks to try to realize. Now, yeah. what's different between a vision and an hallucination is that hallucination is something that you have. It's private. Right. And, of course, that becomes dangerous. And, and a vision is something that you share. In fact, yeah. many times I say, a vision is not really a vision because it's so clever, brilliant, inspiring. A vision is a vision because it stops being yours. Nice. But I, one of the things that I most strongly believe is that leaders do not create visions. Leaders articulate visions. Right. An idea becomes a vision the moment someone hears it and says, that's exactly what I was thinking. Now, that. And when that happens, of course, there's a lot of beauty in the connection that becomes possible, in the energy that gets unleashed, but there's also a risk. The idea might still be crazy. You'll <laughs> be pursuing something that is not only dangerous for you, but I might also put others at risk. Because unfortunately, you know, when it boils down to it, not all visions are the same. Some visions are based on a on a very narrow and um, unfortunately very powerful story, which is we are good and we should be safe, and they are evil and um, and they should suffer. And if you scratch under a lot of visions, you will find that structure. You know yeah, we yeah. deserve better, and it's because of them that we don't have it, and therefore we should make sure we we get as much freedom for us and try to remove freedom from them. And that's what I, what I mean when I say that visions can be dangerous, not just because wow. they lull you into a false sense of security, but because they can often radicalize us. And if you look at you know many leaders who we recognize as visionaries, yeah, yeah. Um, I do this exercise all the time. I ask um, you know people, young, old, from all kinds of walks of life, tell me about... Um, 
people you consider to have been significant leaders in the course of human history. And very often right. very, they'll honestly list some people that we admire, you know, in business, in religion, in politics, the Mandela's, right. the, um, the Martin Luther King's, the... Sure. Yeah, but, you know, Gandhi, Gandhi and Hitler. They will list... Structurally the same. Gandhi, can we say that? I think, yeah. you see, and this is where I think, uh, especially at this time, it's got to be said, to make, to even suggest that there's an equivalency because mm-hmm. they both had an idea that other people passionately believed that they were mobilized by right. is to collude, is to collude into a into a extremely dangerous picture of leadership, which is the leader as the kind of... Um, smooth and successful fanatic that ignites others. That's not leadership. That's successful narcissism. The question is, what does the vision do? And not all visions, and again, you mentioned, you know, Gandhi and Hitler is a great example. If you say, well, they both had visions and people followed them, so they're structurally equivalent. No, they're not. No, they're not. Because one vision separated and another vision held. So GP, this is, I mean, in your opening statement, honestly, there's about there's about four days worth of conversation to be had because mm-hmm. you're pointing to the the attraction of the vision, but also the dangers, the danger of it being a dangerous vision that divides and sets people against people, against a vision that it puts too much power in the hands of the person with the vision, that it potentially creates dependency and re- confirms hierarchy in those that follow the vision so for all the power of a vision it's 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 their prizes and punishments there's a dark side to it as well one of the in in your article in in uh hbr i'm just going to read the title out because i want people to to know about this and and find it the psychology behind effective crisis leadership which was published april 2020 and it's a really great article you shift the I the thought around what a leader should do kind of away from it's all about setting the vision to this concept of holding and that's quite a shift I mean even metaphorically you know vision's got this kind of pointy thing out in the future holding feels a more present thing in the here and now but it's also got a it's also got kind of uh, actual medical roots what, what do you mean by holding I mean, the article came out of of a string of work I was doing in the middle of the pandemic, of the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Where Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that became obvious was that a lot of the the recipe we we have been using for leadership just, um, you know, wasn't just... um, wasn't just useless, it was counterproductive because we often tell leaders exactly, you know, find a great vision, focus on the future, inspire people. And mm-hmm. in, in a moment like that, in a moment of crisis, in a moment of, um, you know, potential despair and confusion and disorientation, you know, people don't just need some um, utopian future that gives them hope. They need to be held. In the, right. They need to be held psychologically. They need to be held socially they need to be held practically and so what i mean by holding is the provision of two things one is what in psychology we call containment which is some effort to normalize whatever it is that you're feeling and to also attenuate the impact of those feelings and the other right. interpretation some way 
to understand what's happening now. Why is it happening? And uh, what can we do about it? And that idea of holding comes from the, um, the work of Donald Winnicott. And it's, it's actually an interesting story. Um, Winnicott was um, a, a very prominent British psychoanalyst in the, um, you know, after the Second World War. And he was quite, at the time, he was quite a radical and challenging figure because psychology was really preoccupied with sort of its Freudian legacy, the legacy that, you know, all you do is right. to help people, you know, the way you help people is to help them understand, right? You're so in its head, you help them understand their history and suddenly they're freed up wherever there was the id, there will be the ego and all that. And Winnicott was the first one to say, really? <laughs> right. Maybe, maybe it's not this kind of brilliant idea that frees people up from their neuroses, from their hang-ups, from their struggles, maybe it's the fact, maybe what really works in psychotherapy is the fact that they're in the presence of another human being mm. that accepts them, that listens to them, that doesn't judge, that tells them you're free to feel what you feel, you're free right. to think what you're thinking, and let's see if we can make some sense of it. And, and really, he shifted, he completely shifted. I mean, it's the singular person, the singular psychologist is responsible for a shift from a cognitive understanding of, of, of healing to, a, to an emotional, to a relational understanding of healing. And, and Winnicott started looking at using this idea of holding to describe that that which happens when one person offers to another person that gift, that gift of space and assurance and, and not just comfort, but also a little challenge. In fact, mm. one thing that he made clear that when we are held well, we're not just complacent, we'll become brave. And, and he actually first started studying patients, but he was, he was a, psychi- he was a um, pediatrician. And right. so looking, he really did some systematic research observing pairs of um, parents with their children, you know, mothers, fathers with their small kids. And one of the things um, that then his students and people that learn from him started to do is to do more and more systematic research showing that kids were held well enough when it got this beautiful idea that you know in order to be a, a parent or any kind of authority you didn't have to be perfect you had to be good enough <laughs> i love that you know you had to be there in fact and in fact if you were perfect there weren't enough ruptures for for the child to sort of figure out like okay what how do i need to right you need to you need to be able to demonstrate your own humanity and vulnerability and kind of messy brilliance to give permission for others to do the same Absolutely. And then as, as, as it looked like, you know, it started looking like, you know, when, when children are held well, what happens is they become more independent. So children mm. who have this kind of strong and fairly secure relationships, this attachment with their parents, the way you saw it is they could go on and play and, you know, they actually didn't think that the good mark of, of a good parent, when they could say it, is the child's not thinking about them. You know, right. they're going with their business. Now, if they're in trouble... They have learned that they can go back and ask for reassurance and ask for help, but they're not con- confined. And the children of anxious parents that were either overprotective or the children of neglectful parents instead were always a bit on edge. They needed right. this constant reassurance. They need to constantly go back and be reassured. We're all right. We are okay. Am I okay? And then, of course, right. psychologists started looking at this and saying, you know what? It's not just children that need this. 
Right. <laughs> or, or alternatively, we are all children always. <laughs> it's the same. We, we need this balance. I think, but, you know, one of the things that, that I like to say is when you look at, you know, the kind of corpus of psychoanalysis, you have to think of the child as a metaphor. Mm. We're not talking about actual children very often. What we're talking about is the child is a metaphor for the human being in a state of development. Right. In, um, in, in our best moments, we're all children, which is we are creatures in the making that need that. and benefit from the gift of care, from the gift of someone that helps us kind of feel a little bit more secure and safe, feel a little bit more challenged and brave and helps us make sense of what's happening. That helps us, you know, if you want to, if you want to say, say it more simply, that helps us put together our head and, and our heart. And that's what holding does, right? It's, yeah. You can have your feelings and you can have your thoughts and both matter. And, and if you look at what mental health is, it's some degree of coherence between the way we understand the world and the way we feel about um, the world. I mean, there's nothing more distressing than, um, you know, being taught, no, the world's okay, but you feel unsafe. And then you feel something's wrong with you, right? Well, GP, let me ask you an impossible question because you're setting up a challenge as a parent and, you know, parent as a metaphor again, but as a leader to say, look, if you buy into this idea around a critical role of a leader is holding, and I buy into it personally, and if you think to yourself, it's a balance between soothing and challenge, mm -hmm. and it's trying to find that, that safety when safety is required, but also pushing people to the edge and pushing them to their own learning edge as required. How do you help leaders do that when it's so easy to go the other way, which is like, you know, t you, t you tip one way and you're now rescuing them. If you want to kind of use yeah. transactional analysis and the drama triangle, you tip too far, you're rescuing them, tip the other way and you're, you're persecutor, tip to another way you're being a victim <laughs> you know you can get so easy to get knocked off how do you help people find that moment and that place I, mean, I think you could you could look at that old drama triangle as um what happens when we're not held mm. you know we keep circling between those um you know those um those characters right the rescuer the victim the persecutor you know yeah. those um you know Steve Carpenter's beautiful way to show what happens when we can't be whole? Then we just become a piece in a story, and we and we and we flick through those. Um, look, the way I think you learn it as a leader is um, first of all you learn it by being held. If you've had a great right. by being held in childhood by a teacher, um, by a parent, but also as an adult by a mentor, by a coach, it's very likely that you can offer it to others. You know, most yeah. of us learn. Most of us learn these things, we register them in our body and then we learn them in relationships and we put them into practice in relationships. So I think it helps to have a conceptual understanding and that's your job. And I think one of the most, I think one of the most problematic thing is that if we don't make it, if we don't speak about it openly as a part of leadership, then even right. leaders that have that capacity won't necessarily use it because they don't see it as something that's part of their role. They see it mm. as part of their role as a parent, as a friend, as a lover, as um, but they don't right. see it as part of their job as a leader. And it very much is. In fact, I would say that some of the best visions often come out of holding. 
you know, I, I, I say in my work on leadership, vision comes last. Good vision comes last. Good it's, it's, a, it's an emergent, it's emergent yeah. from a kind of complex process rather than a, a fake target. See, and I think what, what I think the one thing that you mentioned, and what I want to add to what you mentioned, you know, for me, holding is not just, you know, the soothing, the compassion or the challenge. And this is how you avoid it being rescued. First of all, it's about making space. And it's a bit paradoxical. In order to be a, a leader, who holds, right. you need to follow. And then you're a coach, you know this, right? You know, a yes. good coach has the most impact when they follow. Right. When they make the space for whatever it's happening to begin to emerge. And as it emerges, then you can begin to modulate. Then you can begin to interpret. Then you can begin mm. to make sense. Uh, but you always follow. You always follow. You're always, you know, one. You always create, you're always creating this room in which poss- in which there is possibility you know and yeah. when you can use this this beautiful terminology it was very poetic you know you, you create this space in which other people can go on being you know you right. pinch they don't have to trip over your you know your message your intervention your rescue and all of that now once that space is there you you work with whatever is there and eventually um, a vision with them will emerge and so on and so forth. Now, one thing I want to add, if you allow me, is I take, um, I do take the criticism seriously that leaders are in parents and that I think, you know, we shouldn't push that, that equivalency too much. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, as adults, as children, obviously, often we are powerless. You know, we depend on someone offering us holding or not. Right. As, as adults, very often we build holding not just in vertical relationships, in relationships where there's a power differences, but in horizontal relationships with our partners, with our friends, with our yes. colleagues. And yet leaders often have disproportionate powers, especially if they're formal leaders. If not, we're not talking about informal leaders, but we're talking about a president. Yeah, with our uh, hierarchy. Yeah. And, uh, and there's plenty of examples of leaders who fail to hold um, these days. But when it comes to that kind of leader, because here we're talking about business, we're talking often about, um, you know, large organizations, then you don't just hold in that way in which we traditionally think about it, you know, in that one-on-one making space, following people's lead, letting the, you know, letting the future emerge and whatnot. You also hold the institution. Mm. And I think that the one point I made in that article, I think, and I, and I make in a lot of my research is, you know, there's two kinds of holding. There's the holding that the psychologists always talk about is all this interpersonal to and fro of, um, you know, of strong feelings and half-baked ideas that, you know, become maturity over time. Yeah. One big aspect of leadership is also keeping the lights on, making sure the culture is fair. Right. Sure, people are not gonna. The policies, you know, are, are in place so that people know what's going to happen to them, and they're not. Right. So, the, so it's it's structural. It's not just interpersonal. Absolutely, and in fact, if you look at a lot of leaders, um, you sometimes see leaders who are greatly appreciated and admired, even if they, frankly, you and I know them, they yeah. aren't the most interpersonally, right? If the the most sensitive interpersonally, and you know what? Very often as adults, we appreciate, you know, you're doing your best, you're keeping the institutions functioning in which we can, you know, inhabit safely and productively, and that's good enough. Yeah. 
that's good enough. And then, you know, we can, um, you know, we can figure out how to hold each other interpersonally. I think it's a lot less forgivable if you're a senior leader and you're not strengthening and even worse, if you're damaging the institution and then you're trying to compensate with uh, words and gestures and expressions of empathy, yeah, I think most people will consider you a hypocrite. Well, it, it, it reminds me of the um, Susan, uh, it, no, it's the Radical Candor book and talking about a pattern of behavior which she calls ruinous empathy. And it's that where you don't have the capacity to actually hold the space but, you know, you were talking about holding the space earlier before. It's like actually ruinous empathy is when you pinch the space, you limit the, the piece because people, you disallow yourself and others to show up in a kind of adult-to-adult relationship. Right. It's when you create boundaries, right? And sometimes right. in the context of holding, you might do things that, you know, might appear difficult. I don't know. You have to lay off a group of people, yeah. for example. You pe- but is it clear to people how oh, that's a gesture of care? Yeah. Part of what you're saying now is helping me make a connection I hadn't made originally when I read your article, which is, you know, the the saying that gets bandied around, which is culture eats strategy for breakfast. In some ways, the dichotomy you're setting up between vision and holding actually speaks a little bit to that, because you could say that what a strategy often is, is it's like a an operational plan to deliver the vision. Whereas holding is a commitment to holding the space to allow the, the, the being and the doing, which becomes one definition of culture, which is this is the way we do things around here. I mean, another way of thinking of the culture of, uh, of an organization is, is the way we hold each other. Yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> like, I mean, shivers up and down my spine, GP. <laughs> Beautiful. This, this has been such an interesting conversation. I, I wish I was in France with you with a glass of red wine so I could sit down and go, can we just talk? Um, but our time is up. Um, there will be people who want to find out more about you and your work, GP. Where can they find you in the world? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, on the internet. Um, uh, that's the easiest way. I have a website where all my work is there, my research, my essays, um, stuff I teach, and I update it regularly. That's on www.gpetrilieri.com. I'm going to spell it out, G-P-E-T-R-I-G-L-I-E-R-I on Twitter at um, gpetrilieri. Again, that's G P E T. Um, R-I-G-L-I-E-R-I or on LinkedIn on um, just search for the name that I'm assuming will appear on this podcast. Yeah, that's perfect. And we'll put those links in the show notes as well. GP, it's been an utter pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me, Michael. Hey, it's Michael here. Two things before you go. The first is a gift. The second is a request. The gift I want you to go to mbs.works and hunt down the year of living brilliantly. Really, it's some of my best work because it is a 52-week, 52-teacher, absolutely free video-based course where I spend a lot of time curating some of the smartest people I know and saying, teach me the best of what you've got. If you're looking to really step up to have a year that's just a little bit sweeter, a little bit better than the year you've just had, that is a terrific resource. So please go and check that out. Absolutely free, no obligation, nothing required other than for you to sign up and get going on it. 
And then for the request, I just want what every podcast host wants, which is a little bit of love. So if you'd consider going to iTunes or Spotify or whatever your favorite podcast platform is and giving the podcast a bit of a rating and a bit of a review, that would be amazing. Thank you.